Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining. Today, we're going to be speaking with Jeff Manning. He's going to talk to us about if you want a cowboy as a salesperson, speaking about commissions, the biggest mistakes a company makes when structuring the team, and what are three things to look for as a sales leader joining a new company. And join us next week when we speak with Mark Hunter, the sales hunter. He's going to be talking about the common mistakes companies make when prospecting, how much flexibility should a sales rep have on the pricing? And how to successfully increase pricing to your current clients. Hope you find a lot of value in today's conversation with Jeff Manning. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Hi, everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to ask for your help. I want to hear your feedback about the podcast so that I could make it better and more relevant to you. Send me your thoughts or questions you would like to have answered to adam at startupsales.io or use the get in touch link on the website, startupsales.io. Of course, I am also available on LinkedIn. Just search for Adam Springer. Looking forward to delivering you more and more impactful and helpful interviews. Great, Jeff. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Good morning, Adam. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with uh, kind of a basic overview of how you got into sales. <laughs> it's an interesting question. I don't think anybody ever deliberately goes into sales. You know, nobody as a kid says, I'm going to be a sales guy when I grow up. It's um, just one of those things you find yourself doing. And, you know, as it, my education was law and, and psychology. And uh, I found that Earlier on in my career, I actually found, I thought I was at a disadvantage because I didn't have the business degree that everybody else had. You know, I didn't have finance background or anything. I wasn't an accountant. And I found that, you know, as I got further and further into sales that I actually had a great advantage over um, my colleagues or my competitors because I just had a different skill set that was really focused around um, understanding things, you know, going deeper into things, understanding motivations, understanding details, doing research, uh, figuring out how to make compelling arguments, how to find the thread that unwinds something or ties it together and make a compelling argument. So from, from that perspective, I felt like my skill set kind of accidentally fit in sales because that's kind of what we do. We communicate. We, we seek first to understand when we're really, really good at what we do. And we then we, then we try to tie ourselves to a need, ergo a solution, and make a compelling argument to the customer that, hey, you know, this is, this is what we do, this is what you need, and the, and the two fit perfectly, let's go do this together. But, you know, that skill set, I just kind of find, found myself in technology really more than sales at first. Um, just, you know, fresh out of graduate school, looking for something to do, and, and uh, you know, looking for, to make money, right? And I uh, had friends in the industry that said, hey, why don't you come on over, we need um, at NCR, actually, we need help in project management. And uh, so I started my career actually as a project manager, again, just by happenstance, not by design. 
And uh, I evolved through project management into business development, from business development to marketing and sales. And uh, again, it was all just about solving problems. Uh, and and really, at the end of the day, when we're when we're doing our job right, we're solving problems. So I found myself as a sales guy uh, a number of years ago, and and really love uh, I love the role. I mean, at the end of the day, the best job in any company is to be the number one sales guy. And uh, when you can do that uh, effectively and, and in a repeated way, you're going to have a very nice living uh, and you're going to have a very rewarding uh, relationship um, set you know, of, of professional colleagues and customers and people that you take with you year after year. So it's interesting in that it's always changing. And I find that, that you know, the profile of a really good salesperson is someone who's very rarely content and, and intellectually curious and uh and always looking for the next thing, for something else to do. Um, those personality traits, and I have those personality traits naturally. I look for them in my sales reps, and, and I find that when you can, when you can identify that, especially early on in the process, stimulate that and cultivate that, you've got a really good sales rep. Um, so that's a long way of answering a very easy question. But you know, the short answer is accidentally, I found myself in sales, and uh, I don't regret a minute of it. Yeah, I I think. Uh... Many of the people that I'm speaking to are are very similar boat, but you you said one thing that was interesting uh, that the good salespeople are the ones that are always looking for the next intellectual challenge. But that could also be a detriment uh, for the company because if you're not always challenging them, the good salespeople, anyways, they're going to be looking for the next one, which might be somewhere else. Yeah, for sure. Hey, that's the job of leadership, right? That's what we do. <laughs> we keep them engaged, keep them invested. Uh, always, you always have to have your finger on the pulse of your people. If you have a people-centered, you know, leadership style, not a product-centered leadership style or a financial-centered leadership style, you're ahead of those things. You have to communicate constantly, understand the nature, the psychology of the individuals on your team, and know who needs to do what and when. You know, and a lot of times it's just they just need change, and it doesn't have to be external. It can be internal change. Um, it could be a territory reassignment. It could be a strategic account uh, alignment. It's just something that tells them, we see you, we know you, you need another challenge. You've, a lot of times, you know, the good reps, they get something wired and it's like, okay, I got this figured out. Now I have two choices. I can lather, rinse and repeat, you know, ad infinitum and make a nice living. Or uh, I can, you know, try to do it again either somewhere else or right. And that's, that's the thing you're always on the lookout for your A players. You have to make sure they're always engaged. It's just a matter of engagement really on an emotional intellectual level. And if you can do that, you won't lose them. Is there another way besides just giving them um, new kind of territory, switching territory or giving them a strategic account? Well, I mean, I think the, tra <laughs> the trap you always fall into is, is try to put them in a management role. Um, it's not always appropriate. Sometimes it is. That, but that's another, you know, another arrow in your quiver is is a leadership position. You can give them special assignments like, "Hey, um, I need you to help me. You're crushing it. The rest of the team is struggling. Uh, what if we put you in? You know, would you be interested in doing a little bit of side training for us? If I made you the specialist for something, could you uh, could you take that on as a special project? And again, it's just it's feeling valued outside of the money. Uh, and feeling like you've you've got uh, an effect on the company at a level outside of just selling. So again, it's just part of the engagement process. And I don't think there's a simple answer for that, other than you got to know the people what what kind of motivates them. 
Yeah. I, th- I think it's really important. Uh, people want to feel part of the company. Like they have a, they have weight in the company and that they're, they're involved in the decision-making and, and how the company goes in a path that it's going. No, I, look, a company is nothing more than a gathering of people committed to the same cause, right? It's an organization. So from an organizational theory perspective, everybody feels like they have a role that's understood and recognized and has value to the organization, then they're part of it, right? It's, they're, they're, they're part of that engine that makes the thing move. It's when they become unsure of what the impact is or there's no feedback on it, they become disenfranchised, right? And as long as things are moving forward and they know they see what the output of their piece is and, and they see that other people recognize it, I mean, that's 90% of the battle. Yeah. Great. So when, they, when you went to Siberia uh, almost a year ago, what were some of the key factors uh, that you that they provided to you besides money that made you choose to work with them? Yeah, I think I'm attracted to um, transition. I think in, in a lot of companies, especially in technology, are always in transition. They're trying to get from you know, this phase to the next phase in the evolution of their growth. They're, they're stagnated. They're rubbing up, up against the edges of their existing you know, core competencies or capabilities or talent or whatever. They need an injection. They need new ideas. I, I like that space. When, it, when a company's at full throttle, I don't. It's not that interesting to me. It doesn't mean it wouldn't be a good experience. It doesn't mean I wouldn't make money and have fun. But I know myself, right? And I know where where my value is to an organization, and it is in those frictional transitional periods. So when I see a company that is that is you know this particular point, and they're trying to get to the next one but they've got some challenges, then I feel like, well, for me, that's the creative process, right? That, that stimulates my creative juices. And I can walk into, walk into the organization, assess the design of the go-to-market, figure out where the breakpoints are, maybe you know, figure out how it, whether it's compensation plans or organizational alignment, team structures. Um, there's lots of different things that come into play, but you know, from my perspective, to me, the energy is right there. How, what moves do I make that take, you know, that that kind of force this quantum leap forward and unsticks something? So I felt like Cybera has been around for a while, but has kind of reinvented itself many, many times. The company was founded in the early 2000s, right? And has had many identities and many, um, again, many reinventions over the years. And that's that speaks a lot. That's uh, to the existing or the previous management regime, right? And the ownership and the founder of the company done a lot of good work to keep it relevant, keep it profitable, keep it in the game in the face of continuous transition and change and reinvention, right? But, you know, then they took, uh, they were acquired by a private equity firm, a growth equity firm, and the growth equity firm is looking at the company saying, okay, here's what I have, but here's what I want. How do I get from here to there? And to me, the challenge to do that uh, at this level and have complete control over how we get there was very, very exciting. All right. And when you're dealing with a, a private entity uh, that's telling you, we want to get here, but they don't care about the details. They don't care about the excuses. How do you find that you best explain the situation to them um, so that it's, it's easier to sell the situation? Yeah. Well, first, first of all, before you get yourself in that type of uh, position, you really need to make sure that, uh, that those people are reasonable 
that they have a realistic understanding of the current condition and a realistic set of expectations of what it will take to get to the next step. So I tell you what came over, but you know, I spent a lot of time with these people before coming over. And if at any time during that process, I felt like they just didn't get it, I wouldn't be here because frankly, it just, it takes a whole team effort. And the first team member that matters most is the owners, right? Whether they're the founder or an external venture capital or a private equity firm, if they don't understand what they have realistically, um, and what it's going to take to get to the next thing, then nobody will be successful because there'll just be unnatural pressure coming at all angles at all times. And it will, it will collapse, um, the individual, if not the company. So, uh, I'm very fortunate to have a very good partnership with very reasonable, uh, PE group. They're actually involved, uh, more than most, meaning not in a disruptive way, but they understand the business. And, and for me, I wouldn't have made the the leap if if that wasn't the case. So, um, and just being open and honest, you can't you can't always be selling. Just because we're salespeople, we shouldn't always be selling. <laughs> you know, I mean, good news should travel fast, bad news should travel faster, and you just have to be real, realistic and and open and honest and and make sure that you know you're getting the same in return. Uh, it's a partnership. Absolutely, uh, but. What you said salespeople shouldn't always be selling. I think salespeople should always be listening. Key, Correct. Key difference. <laughs> Correct. That's exactly right. I mean, look, if you're not the best salespeople are the best listeners, right? When our job is not to constantly broadcast and inform, our job is to understand. Through that understanding and through questions, more than rather than telling, you should be asking and listening. And that creates this co authorship and a collaborative environment with the customer, internal or external. You know, or, or even spousal. I do this with my wife. If we're talking and you're listening and asking questions, you get to the result, but it becomes both of your answers, not just one person's forceful answer. You know, you're not imp imposing your will. It's, it's a joint effort. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really key. Uh, building the trust and the rapport with the client is, or, or your wife, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> in, in having that conversation and making sure that both parties are heard. Exactly. Good. Uh, one of the things that you said uh, previously is, is that one of the challenges that you like to do is, is team structure. And I want to touch on that a little bit. What are some of the big mistakes that you've seen companies make as far as team structure? Yeah, I think yeah, I've, seen I've seen companies verticalize too soon. I've seen them um, fractionalize ownership of the market a little too early. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that. But, um, and I think I've seen them um, really seek to separate, monitor, and manage, and compensate individual efforts as opposed to team, team efforts maybe a little too soon. When you are a, a big steady state company, you know, quasi-commodity company, I mean, you have run rate, you have visibility into pipeline, you have you know, experienced and, and fully optimized and enabled channels, you can get to a place where you can start to pare down, you know, um, mission specific sales objectives. Uh, and they can be, again, they can be market verticals. They can be inside versus outside. Um, so I think when you try to hyper-specialize too soon, <clears throat> you can create a really frictional environment for your sales team. Excuse me. And, and really, the, when you're, especially in the early stage startup, the most important thing is market share, market traction, penetration. You've got to get forward momentum going. You've got to get inertia. 
right, moving forward. The easiest way to do that is to have people working together to a common objective. And uh, I've, I've just seen too many companies look at that and say, well, we're going to have a certain segment of our sales team focus on this, you're going to focus on that, and you're going to focus on something else over here. And in between those focus stovepipes, it's a lot of friction. They rub up against each other. And if you don't have a way to ease that friction through compensation um, and, or through um, collaboration, then you're just going to get a kludgy go-to-market motion, who's doing what or who gets comped on what. So you got to look for those tension points and figure out a way to remove them to get moving forward. And again, again, this is really, really important for startups. If you don't figure that piece out, you're really doing yourself a disservice. It's not, time is, is, is of the essence because market share, early market share is the most important thing. Um, and, and my advice would be, don't, don't do it. Just <laughs> don't worry about it. That time will come where you can have product-specific salespeople or um, you know, functionally-specific salespeople. In the meantime, just get moving. Just get market share. Just sell. Um, and don't worry about the little things. I think there's too many agendas at work at early, you know, in early-stage sales plans, and uh, it, I just find it disruptive. Trying to do too much with uh, not, enough, not enough of a team. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And there's a lot of external pressures in a startup. You've got a lot of cooks in the kitchen, right? You know, in a traditional tech VC started fund, uh, VC funded startup, you've got a lot of people impressing upon you what you should do and what you need to do. And I think, you know, I'll take the artist, the sculptor's view of the world and say, it isn't about all the stuff you should do. It's about all the stuff you should take away, right? Until the piece of art reveals itself, it's in there. Just peel it away. It's counterintuitive. Do less right? Keep it simple. Uh, your, your team should understand very quickly um, how they're compensated, for example. Uh, it shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't have, an, you know, there shouldn't be a calculus involved for them to sit there and figure out how they get paid on things. And I'm segueing into really another component, which is compensation plans. They should be able to calculate in their head, sitting across the table from a customer, really simple math. Oh, if I do this deal, I, I make that much money, right? If I make it bigger, I make this much money. It shouldn't be a really advanced calculus of delayed you know, gratification and compensation. Keep it simple. And the same goes for the organizational structure. Simplicity rules. Yeah. I've seen too many uh, founders or CEOs starting to cap, cap the commission or do funny things with the commission once you start making more. And it's why? They're bringing you sales. It's the same. It's actually cheaper for you to, to keep paying them instead of having two or three different salespeople do the same amount of work. Yeah, huge mistake. I mean, caps on commissions, huge mistake. Bluebird clauses, huge mistake. Um, you need people to be successful. You need to build an environment of energy and excitement and jealousy, <laughs> healthy jealousy or envy, I should say. Um, they need to see it. They need to understand it's like, it, it may sound stupid. It's a first world problem, right? But a sales rep needs to understand when they look at their comp plan, how they make a million bucks a year. And that doesn't mean they're going to, but they need to know I could, if this, that, and the other thing happened, if they look at their comp plan and say, I don't, like, I don't see how I make over 300 K. This just doesn't make any sense. Then if they take the job, you've got a, a sales rep you should be concerned about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it. Yeah. If they don't care about the potential upside, then yeah. uh, there's a problem. Yeah. There. They need to be a little bit coin operated or a lot coin operated. Yeah. I always, uh, I always tell people that it's always better to take a lower base and get more commission because if you believe in yourself, there it is. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, but early stage startup, I mean, there's a lot of risk, right? So the, and again, I'm kind of all over the place, I apologize, but this is a really, uh, this is a big bucket question, right? And there's a lot of things that touch it. And, and it gets back to the, the personality profile of, of the people you're looking for, especially that early stage, right? You need risk. You just brought it up, right? That you that people that understand, they you know they kind of don't want to be tied down. They just want to say, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna sing for my supper. Just don't get in my way. Give me the roadmap of how I make a million bucks. I'm gonna go get it. That's what I do." Uh, that gunslinger mentality is really really important early stage. You can't have a risk averse uh, person, right? You can't say, "Well, I'm, I'm gonna go get this person in my startup because they've got uh, so many years at at this big company and that big company. They know how it's done." That may be, they may be phenomenal, but what you really need to be assessing is the risk profile of the individual. Are they intellectually curious? They got a lot of energy. Do they believe in themselves, have a gunslinger mentality? Do they embrace or reject risk? Because otherwise you're going to be spinning through salespeople, you know, once their draw runs out every, you know, three, six, nine months, you're going to be getting a new sales rep for that role because they just weren't the right personality profile for the stage of company you are. What about if, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying gunslingers, which I, I really feel like I'm that kind of mentality. I love to just go out there, get it done, get out of my way. Let, let me do it. I know, what I, I know what to do. I've proven it before. Let me do it. But at the same time, a lot of people look at that attitude as kind of like, oh, he's not going to be a team player. There's some concerns there. What do you say to that? Uh, <laughs> there are some who are, and there's some who aren't, and that would lead to my uh, one of my criteria for hiring. You know, I, I mentioned one is intellectual curiosity, the other is emotional intelligence. And uh, if the EQ of that person is in, the, is in the right end of the spectrum, I don't worry about that because they recognize that hey, I, I'm a gunslinger, but well, maybe more appropriately, I'm the quarterback. Okay, uh, and I have I can't be successful without a team, but I want the ball on every play. And I'll decide how we're going to get to the end zone. That's the mentality I'm looking for, uh, because the quarterback realizes that. And, and again, it's an American football term. I apologize, but um, the quarterback realizes that, irrespective of their talents and how great they are, they honestly they can't do it all on their own. They need project management. They need engineering. They need support. They need product management. They need marketing. They need finance and legal support. They do need team members around them, and they may need additional uh, field sales support you know, or inside sales support, they do recognize that what they want is to call the play. And that's the person I'm looking for. One that's in charge. Yeah, it takes control, um, kind of gets the team in the huddle and says, winning is that way. And that's the way we're going. You're with me or get off the field. Well, you know, I'll play with nine players. I don't need 11 because I know the play, you know, I know how to get there, but I need you, but I don't need all of you if you're not on board. Uh, but I'm, you know, we're going that way. <laughs> Good. How are you testing for uh, for EQ? Well, I wish I had a test. Um, <laughs> no such thing. I, it's really um, it's conversational gut feel. It's people who know the person. You got to do a lot of reference checks. I I always default to the same thing everybody in my role does, which is people I've worked with before. Um, that's always optimal hire those you already know. Uh, to mitigate that risk, you know, in in the absence of being able to do that, you've just got to spend a lot of time with the person and. and and trust your instincts. Uh, conversation to me uh, is very revealing. I don't, you know, my interviews, I'm a terrible interview er, interviewer by the classical sense and that I'm not, you know, I probably don't ask the classical questions. I'm more of a, um, <clears throat> let's have a conversation about anything. I just want to understand how you perceive the world, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how you, how you read and interpret data, uh, whether it's how the, 
the waiter brought your hamburger and undercooked it, and how do you deal with that or anything at all? And it just tells me a lot about, um, you know, the way that you receive stimulus from the world and react to it tells me a lot about you as a person. Uh, and that's just kind of what I'm looking for. I get the EQ sense for the person through just through personal interpersonal contact. And, um, you know, I, I, there's probably, yeah, you know, there's probably an MMPI methodology to get to the bottom of a person's uh, EQ, but uh, you know I don't go through that. It's just I don't have time for it. You just kind of f you can understand it. If your EQ is high as a leader, you can kind of recognize uh, birds of a feather relatively quickly. Absolutely. I uh, one of the questions I generally ask is this has to do more with the uh, curiosity stage of of a person. But I'm always asking, like, on a personal level, just a conversation before we get into the quote-unquote interview, uh, what are you reading? Do you, what kind of books do you read? Yeah. Because uh, I'm looking to see if, if it's novels, okay, that's great. But, like, is there any, like, blogs or any kind, of, any kind of learning that they're doing just for learning's sake? Right. No, I couldn't agree more. Ex the the non-domain-specific material is what I'm most, most interested in. You know, I'm not that interested if you're reading like uh, I shouldn't say I'm not interested. I, my expectation is that you're always looking at stuff within your professional domain, technical rags and things like that. But I'm more interested in what else. Are you a fiction or a nonfiction guy? Are you, uh, you know, are you are you fantasy or science? What what is your thing? And, and do you have more than one thing? Are you multi-talented? Do you have multidisciplinary approach to life? Uh, because if you do, you're gonna have higher probability of success in sales because what we're looking for is how do we differentiate ourselves from our competitors and there's a there's a really a blueprint to what we do and most people think salesperson they have a vision in their mind of what that person looks like and it's a cliche it's a cliche because it's partly true so if you can differentiate yourself from that cliche by being interesting by being conversational by things that are not related to what we're trying to accomplish within the room of the customer um, that's memorable that's transformative it takes discussions in a different direction, which makes you more authentic and approachable and relatable. And so if you are relatable on a multidisciplinary level, you're probably going to be quite successful. And, and I look for the exact same things and I do the same things. I'm just as likely to pick up a scientific American magazine as I am a, a home redecorating magazine and, and it's Hudson News. You know, I just, things interest me. I'm, and, and I look for people who, are, who find things peculiar and want to understand better because they do better sales discovery. Uh, not just that, but they connect the dots within the customer in a deeper way. They're not superficial. They don't, they don't look for a single point of contact within the customer. They're in the customer and they're asking lots of questions. Well, who owns that project? Well, and who do they report to? And well, how does that impact this project? And is there a way we can uh, help with that as well and find multiple funding sources for our single project? Those people unpeel the onion a lot faster and a lot better than those that are single threaded. Peel the onion and also like looking outside the box to enable you to peel the onion. Yeah, solve, solve the problems in a different way. Again, be memorable, transformative, uh, be impactful in the room, have an idea that nobody thought of. That's consultative. That's, that's what customers are looking for. They're looking for people to help them. So, Jeff, are your, is your team uh, mainly outbound or inbound sales? Right now, we're mainly outbound. And, you know, we aspire to be an inbound sales organization because if you're inbound, that means... You know, they're coming at you left and right. And uh, we're still, I think, in a lot of ways, just the nature of what we do is uh, direct touch and outbound focus. And we use our inside sales team 
more often than not to um, to help with the you know the onboarding and customer enablement and sales closing of our brand wins. So if we go out and win a major brand and that brand has multiple franchisees, for example, this is a really good place for us to use inside, then it'll be inbound because we've won a brand, we've won a mandate from corporate and now the, the owner operators are kind of calling us or hitting our website trying to figure out how do we deploy this now, I have to do this, I've got a PCI mandate or something, I need to get this rolled out soon. So our insights team uh, often has a very warm to, you know, a warm to very warm lead and we just need to close it in that regard. But the, the sale itself is, is traditionally generated on an outbound basis by an, you know, an outside sales rep. Okay, so your outbound is kind of more like um, like more kind of semi-business development, looking for the strategic partnerships uh, or strategic accounts so that the inbound team could to grow it. So it's like land and expand. Yeah, you got it. I mean, traditionally, that's the way it's been. We're, uh, you know, we're, we're in a fluid state, right? Always looking to realign, always looking to change our motion to get better sales and change our trajectory. But yeah. Okay. How's your uh, how's your team doing the outbound? Like, how are they finding people? What kind of tools are they using? Things like that. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's a great question. It's really the seminal question uh, uh, for us at this point in time. Is you know how do we get more? And uh, it's you know I think marketing has changed a lot over the past few years, and how you reach and touch customers has changed an awful lot. Um, I mean, technology has improved, but so has the customer technology side of keeping you out. <laughs> They are very good at making sure, you know, here's the reality, right? Our customers in the tech world are under siege from sales reps from every corner of earth trying to sell them a better mousetrap or a mousetrap they didn't know they needed. So they have uh, similarly architected defense mechanisms so that only very few filter through. They're doing a lot of their own education, right, uh, before they even engage with a sales rep for anything, no matter what technology you're trying to sell them. By the time we get to them, they're typically, you know, halfway through the process of something and, and we're trying to draft onto that or change the game. But, uh, you know, we, there's the old school tried and true methods of picking up the phone, which not enough people do anymore, um, and, and, and banging through. We use our channel partners. We use our carrier partners. We use a multi-threaded, multi-pronged approach to try to get into a customer and the right person within the customer organization. Uh, to get our message heard, to have our ideas explored. We might even just do uh, LinkedIn is a very good tool. Uh, we are, you know, Salesforce and Marketo organization as well. Um, so you're always trying to find a way just to be heard for a minute. Uh, the What we find is really most effective is probably the um, events. We do a lot of marketing events. Uh, we do a lot of regional, smaller events like ISSA chapter meetings and things like that that are focused uh, and smaller in scope, but highly relevant in terms of who attends them. And, you know, we're trying to, you know, get out there to the public speaking gigs and, and all of these conferences and events that we do just to be heard so that someone at the end can approach you and say, hey, I heard what you said. Um, tell me a little bit more. I think I might have something uh, that you can help me with. Uh, there's no silver bullet right now in the industry that's uh, super highly effective. You've got to try it all. Uh, kiss a lot of frogs and um, and just keep swinging and eventually you know you break through yeah so so the small events are that are really focused you're finding are much better than the big conferences I find that to be the case uh, it depends some of the conferences are 
in some conferences are great one year, but they're not the next. It's just, it's bizarre. I don't know if it has to do with you know, funding or budgeting or it's project related, but what I do find is regional chapter events, which are really more like meetups for security professionals do them, networking professionals do them. They're really good because they're generally the people that are involved in projects that are, are tailored. They might not be exactly what you do, um, but they're, and it's a disarming setting, right? It's not a, um, it's not a sales event, but if you can go and, and bring value, you can have conversations with people, real honest to goodness conversations. And a lot of times, you know, I try to get our, just our technical guys to these things and no salespeople because they're highly, they're mostly attended by technical people and they don't want to talk to salespeople. But if, if you can make, uh, do the Vulcan mind melt, you know, with an SE and a technical guy at a, at a, uh, at a customer or a prospect, then you've got an authentic bond, a relationship that was non-threatening and it was just informational sharing. And then you can take the next step, right? The salesperson can engage in a non-threatening manner, but you know, it, it, Adam, everybody's guard is up right now in the industry because like I said, they're just under, they're assaulted on a daily basis. Everybody's trying to sell everybody something. And, and I think, you know, everybody's got an SDR. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's true. And, and so, you know, I would think probably two thirds of the time that the phone number you get now is just a dump line to a, mo a voicemail box that nobody ever checks. And, and rightfully so. I mean, we, we've created this condition ourselves. Um, we all have jobs to do. And that, at any rate, I, you know, I find if you can get to a, uh, a regional meetup where people are trying to solve a problem with a technical person and you get a technical person and they get to know each other, it just becomes a lot easier because it's a less threatening end customer. I think you said something again uh, that we, we spoke about briefly at the beginning of the conversation, uh, that a salesperson should, should listen, uh, and you said to bring value. So, you know, if people don't want to go to conferences and speak to all the salespeople because they're so busy trying to pitch their product instead of listening and bringing value to the person that they're on, that they're speaking with. It's, you know, it, it's, so I'm reading this book right now. I'm just about done with it called A More Beautiful Question. And it really gets to, it's by Warren Berger. It's about, um, it's about creating divergent thinking within the customer through better questioning and engaging the customer by soliciting their information, not yours. Right? <laughs> and through that process, you stimulate this, without even realizing this, this spirit of collaboration, you just, you, you ask better questions, more profound questions that cause the prospect or customer to stop and think. And, and, and really not just answer the question, but think about, well, why are we doing things a specific way? What if we could do it a totally different way? What would that look like for us? And how could we do that? And these, these more like quasi-religious questions about what you're doing. Have you really ever thought about this? Getting them to zoom out and getting their philosophy that they're giving to you. And then they start to engage you. So this, you know, this is what most people don't do well. Again, we think that our job is to show up and throw up. We think our job is to show up and inform. And then we wonder why the phone doesn't ring after us because we didn't, we didn't engage them. We didn't make them the solution. We thought we were the solution, right? We're not. They're the artist. We're the paintbrush. We got we to gotta make them author the solution and choose us out of that box to paint with. And, and we don't do that because we don't make them feel like it's their answer, right? So this is the, the point. And this is what people who are intellectually curious and have a high EQ are able to do just organically. They don't even know they're doing it. And, uh, and that's a challenge. And that's why we don't get callbacks. That's why people don't want to talk to sales reps. Not enough of, the, of us are good at that.
Yeah, it's it's a fine line because you want to be in control of the conversation when you're having one, but you at the same time you want them to be in control or feel that they're in control. Yeah. Yeah, that is power. <laughs> That's power. When you have the strength to relinquish it and give them the space, you're in control even though you just gave it away because you had the strength and the power to do that. Let them have it and they'll appreciate it and it'll come back to you, but it just won't be immediate. Um, and again, it's a counterintuitive. I look for counterintuitive people. Have you read the book uh, to, sell is, to Sell is Human? I have not. He talks about that there. So it's a, also a good book about uh, sales in general, uh, how everybody's a salesperson, even if you're not in sales. Right. For sure. <laughs> Just some are better than others. <laughs> <laughs> some do it on purpose. Some do it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So... I want to ask one kind of que- one final question because we talked a lot about like what you look for in a salesperson. Uh, it's kind of going back to the middle of the conversation, but are you looking for that person with experience or are you looking for that person that has the ability? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but you know, I would take ability over experience. Um, experience uh, is important, but I have experience. I have management teams with experience. When you know, I want people who will leverage their resources, and I'm a resource, and their direct line manager is a resource. So I'd rather, I, you know, I, I would rather take a, um, and I think this is what you're asking me. I would rather have someone who's just got it, a superior athlete that needs a little bit of coaching, a little bit of direction, um, and you know, just rounding out the edges, than someone who's got a ton of experience. Um, but maybe doesn't have the raw skills, you know, I, and experience really counts for, I don't want to diminish it. You know, I have experience and I value it and, and, and I've had them both. I've had reps that were much older than me and I've had uh, younger ones. And I've always enjoyed working with the younger, less experienced ones because they're hungry and they'll take coaching uh, and, and they're just, you know, you wind them up and let them go. And it's, it's fun to watch. And by the way, for, in, a, in a selfish way, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy the teaching process. I, I get a lot out of it, personal gratification by seeing them be successful. Um, it's meaningful to me. It's part of the reason I'm in this position. I enjoy that. And there's less that I can add to a highly experienced rep other than just to be a sounding board and, and maybe have an idea here and there, but they know what to do. And uh, my job is to get them to update Salesforce, right? <laughs> <laughs> the more experienced the rep, the worse they are at it. But um, yes, I hate opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They sandbag and, and you never know what they're doing, but they bring in orders. So that's a good thing. But, uh, you know, the experience matters a lot just for uh, they generally have relationships either uh, within the end user community or within the partner community. And that's very helpful. So the answer again is yes, I want both. But if I had to choose one, I'd probably take. Uh, the one with pure ability. Now you said that uh, you want, if it's somebody with the ability, and not uh, not the experience, that the, if they're resourceful, they'll use you as a resource. How do you keep them from from leaning on you, though? Uh, yeah, I just don't return their phone calls. <laughs> 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 no, I, I, you know, I think most people don't. Most people don't want to do that. Um, most people want to be autonomous, and that's part of the ability. You know, uh, superior athletes don't want to be told. Uh, how to run, you know, they, they think they know how, but they will, they will ask, you know, to, how do I get better at this? Uh, what should I do next? And that's all fine and good. I, I have all kinds of time in the world for that. I'm never going to not, 
I'm never not going to spend time on good questions, but it gets to a point where if it's, it's too much, you start asking the question, well, what do you think you should do? What did you do last time? What do you want to do next? If you stop answering the question and start asking them what the answer is over time, they start to figure out, oh, okay, <laughs> he's right. I should be doing this on my own by now. I don't have to keep coming back to, to check in. All right. Well, Jeff, uh, I think there's a lot deeper that we could dive here and, uh, I, but we're out of time, unfortunately, maybe we'll go round two here soon. Uh, but I really appreciate you coming in and, uh, sharing, sharing your experience with us. Thank you, Adam. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. To contact Adam about consulting services or speaking engagements, visit StartupSalesPodcast.com or email StartupSalesPodcast at gmail.com. Great, Jeff. Let's uh, finish things off with the final five questions. What is your favorite sales or leadership book? Favorite sales or leadership book? Um, it's probably not uh, something that you've ever heard before, but <laughs> it's not really a sales or a leadership book. Uh, it's uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. And it's a very abstract um, mythological uh, study on uh, human archetypes. And, and the reason I find that interesting is it, it really helps me understand the, the different motivations of people and what roles they think they play or want to play in life for themselves, how they self-identify. And when you can figure out how a person self-identifies, you can figure out how to talk to them. I think that's definitely a sales book. <laughs> it's not a sales, quote unquote, <laughs> but it's uh, definitely a, for the higher level salesperson, sales book. Good. Do you uh, have somebody that you follow or read uh, for sales or leadership advice? Uh, so on LinkedIn, for example, I follow a number of people. And it's not really sales advice. It's just it's uh, just life advice, which I take and translate into sales. And Simon Sinek, I find, is is very good. Um, he's probably yeah, I would say he's probably the number one uh, that I will follow LinkedIn and kind of click on his stuff and just read what he's saying. I like his perspective on life. Okay, are you available twenty four seven, or do you have strict personal time boundaries? No, I am, I am not available 24-7. I do not aspire to be available 24-7. I think it's unhealthy. Um, I'm available while I'm awake in general, but uh, my, my uh, phone does have a uh, decline button on it, and I use it. If it's after you know, 8 o'clock at night and I'm just tired and I'm with my family, I'm not going to answer that phone. Uh, if I, get a, I will check the voicemail. If it's important, I will return it. Although voicemail, who's using voicemail anymore? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Text. Yeah, if they don't, if if I don't pick up, then the text comes in, and that's fine. Sometimes it's important. Good. What is your favorite tool used for sales? Um, my favorite tool. I, I like LinkedIn. I just like the yeah it's LinkedIn. I just powerful. like the ability to figure out, you know, if I'm trying to get into an organization, uh, where do I need to go, and who do I know that knows that person that can help me. Okay. And do you have any other tools that you like besides LinkedIn? I don't. I mean, I I'm not I'm not a tool uh, guru. Our company does. I mean, you know, the reps are, are big Marketo fans and Salesforce fans and all that. But, you know, I'm, I'm less of a tool person. Yeah, just pick up the phone. <laughs> yeah, pick up. You know, honestly, that's my favorite tool and not enough people do it. I like phone. Yeah. Not text, not email. I, I like to pick up the phone um, because I get broader context through tone and syntax. You can understand what a person's saying. You can't always understand what they're writing. Exactly. Good. Last question is, uh, what one piece of advice do you have for all the founders uh, 
for sales leaders out there? Yeah, I think people, process, and product in that order. People first. You can uh, have the best product in the world, but without the right people and the right process, you will probably fail. However, you can have a subpar product, but with really exceptional people who are inspired in the right process, you can be the most successful in your market. And that's just the way it is. So, you know, have a people-centered approach. Be honest about where you are in your evolution when you hire them and be honest with them about it. Um, and hire the right people. Good. All about the people, people in process. I think it is. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it.